Welcome to the Cranberry Chronicles, a podcast where we'll be discussing all things cranberries, including where they come from, why we love them, and how they love us back. We'll be delivering a fresh science-backed perspective on health, wellness, and nutrition trends translated into a language that we can all actually use. I'm your host, Bonnie Tab Dix. You'll find me on Instagram at Bonnie Tab Dix and BTD Media or at my website, betterthandieting.com. So whether you're a registered dietitian, a health professional, a wellness enthusiast, or just a cranberry connoisseur, we welcome you. Welcome to the Cranberry Chronicles, a podcast where we'll be discussing all things cranberries, including where they come from, why we love them, and how they love us back. We'll be delivering a fresh science-backed perspective on health, wellness, and nutrition trends translated into a language we can all use and understand. We're so excited to be sitting down with a variety of food, health, and industry experts for in-depth conversations that we hope will enhance the work you do and that it will also inspire you to live a healthier life. So whether you're a registered dietitian, a health professional, a wellness enthusiast, or just a cranberry connoisseur, we welcome you. I'm your host, Bonnie Taub Dix, and you'll find me on Instagram at Bonnie Taub Dix and at BTD Media or at my website, betterthandieting.com. Today, we'll be taking a deep dive into the relationship between sleep and nutrition. And I am so thrilled to bring you our esteemed guest, Dr. W. Chris Winter, who is a neurologist and a sleep specialist. Dr. Christopher Winter has practiced sleep medicine and neurology in Charlottesville, Virginia since 2004, but has been involved with sleep medicine and sleep research since 1993. Currently, he is the owner of Charlottesville Neurology and Sleep Medicine Clinic and CNSM Consulting. He is the author of The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It, love that, as well as The Rested Child, Why Your Tired, Wired, and Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help. In addition to working with numerous professional sports organizations, in the NFL, MLB, and NBA to help their athletes optimize sleep. He is the host of the podcast, Sleep Unplugged, with Dr. Chris Winter, which has consistently ranked as one of the most popular medical podcasts in the country. He is also the host of the Sleep.com series, Sleeping Around with Dr. Chris Winter. I am so excited to chat with you today, and I have so many questions, professional and personal, so let's get started. Most people feel that they are impacted by sleep during the night when they're tossing and turning, but actually sleep affects so many of the things that we do during the course of the day. So I know this is a broad question, but why is sleep so important? First of all, thanks for having me, Bonnie. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. That is a broad question. It's massively broad. It's sort of like, why should we breathe air? Why should we drink water and eat food? It's 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 foundational to life and everything we do from a performance perspective. You know, I just got back from Indianapolis where they had the yearly massive scientific sleep meeting where all the good researchers in sleep get together and, and share their research. And it's just staggering. I mean, it's an entire football field space full of posters that all these great researchers are doing about how sleep affects our emotional health and our ability to perform well on a test and our ability to athletically be at our best and 
it prevents cancer and it extends life and it makes us happier and it makes our gut work better. It makes our brain work better. It makes our heart healthier and prevents cardiovascular disease and mortality of all kinds. So it is very difficult to answer that question because what we invest in sleep every night always pays us back in terms of better health and better performance in in sort of any cognitive domain. I think the easier question to answer is, what does sleep not affect? Like sleep great or sleep poorly, what is what part of ourselves would be unaffected by that variable? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe uh, eye color, whether you sleep poorly or don't sleep well, I'm going to continue to have green eyes, you know. But outside of that, I don't know that that you, there really is anything that sleep doesn't have its fingers in. Maybe green bloodshot eyes, though. That's right. <laughs> that's bloodshot that's... Uh, bags under your eyes. That's exactly. That even a vision has been shown to be, uh, you know, improved with better sleep too. So risk of glaucoma. I mean, it's you can get into a lot of eye health and sleep, but maybe eye color would escape that. You know, it's something that that I'm interested in in terms of just what's in the media and news about sleep because I'm often interviewed about the best and the worst foods to eat before sleep. And I'd love to hear your opinion about the sleep nutrition connection and how that affects overall health. There's a huge connection there. And I think that there's a lot of simultaneous discussions that happen in the media about this. There's unmistakably a connection between good nutrition and sleep. When you look at the biochemical cascade of things that are happening in your brain when you sleep, I always tell people, do not think about your sleep as your brain being turned off. That's probably one of the most common things that's said in my clinic. Oh, Chris, I wish I could just get in bed and shut my brain off. Your brain is wildly active during sleep and doing all kinds of important processes for your body. And a lot of that has to do with the chemicals in our brain. And so, you know, think about, you know, consuming a glass of milk and the amino acids in the milk get sort of divided up and you might get some tryptophan out of that mix and the tryptophan gets converted into a couple different chemicals that eventually create melatonin in your brain and it helps you time your sleep. And every step along the way as one chemical gets converted into the next relies on the nutrition, not only in terms of the building blocks of these chemicals, but the enzymes and the, the conversions that happen from one chemical to the next rely on a healthy amount of all kinds of nutrients and micronutrients to make those chemical reactions happen the way they should so that we wake up and feel refreshed the next day and can go to the gym and be great in our jobs and be kind to our families. And so making sure that all of those nutritional needs are being met is extremely important to sleep. I think sometimes where media kind of goes a little bit sideways is for somebody who takes them four hours to fall asleep, can giving them a little potassium make them fall asleep and for it? Probably not. But that's not to say that nutrition isn't important. It's sort of the analogy I always use is you want to run a six-minute mile. It's always been your dream to go out to a track and run a mile in six minutes. I think choosing the right shoes and the clothing you wear is extremely important and is going to support your ability to reach that running goal. There's not a pair of shoes in the world that you're going to put them on and with no practice, just bang out a six-minute six mile because of the shoes. So the shoes support your, your athletic efforts, 
they're not creating your performance. And I think you could look at nutrition that way is that we want to create a complete nutritional complement for our bodies. So it is supported to do the things that you want it to do. You know, I think that that's a fabulous analogy. And I think that that is not what media usually looks for because they just want to know the list of cheese, kiwi, almonds, cherries, bananas, and then you need to take those foods and break them down. Okay, what does that mean? Well, maybe it does mean potassium, magnesium. You know, maybe it needs means the other nutrients that you need to fall asleep, but they're really just looking for quick answers. We love nothing more than a quick answer. And sleep is lends itself to a much longer game, particularly for people who are struggling with their sleep. It's usually, I mean, I'm wait. I've been in this field for what, 30 years. I'm waiting for the person who said, I was really struggling with my sleep, but I started eating peanuts and now I'm fine, you know, <laughs> or whatever the food is. Like it just doesn't work that way. But that's not to say that nutrition isn't extremely important. I mean, what are the four variables that we can control in terms of our health? Sleep's one of them. Are you getting enough sleep? Do you give yourself enough time for rest in your life? There's nutrition, there is exercise, and then there's sort of mindfulness and taking care of the mental health side of things and in whatever way that is meaningful to you. Outside of that, you know, those are the four things that we have some control over. And I think paying equal attention to all four of those things is really important. Yeah, I agree. And I and I want to get into that mindfulness a little bit later. I do have a question food-wise about teas. What about all of these medicinal teas that are on the market now? Some of them contain valerian. Just curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I like tea. I, my wife is a big tea drinker, maybe as much for the ritual of it as the actual con- constituents in the tea. I mean, I think the rules for tea are number one, no caffeine at night, which is a pretty obvious one. But yeah, I mean, I actually grow chamomile. I think it's it's real fun to grow and you dry it out and grind it up and put it in a little bag and and steep it to taste delicious with whatever, you know. So, you know, again, it's all about support, you know. And then you know, the other thing about tea is that it's creating a temperature change in your body. And it's also a cue, you know, so what I like about tea and coffee is not so much, you know, leaning on it so I can get through my day. It's more the ritual of when my body tastes the chamomile at night and the lights are being dimmed and I'm watching the newest episode of Yellowstone or whatever's whatever's, like my body's like, oh, this is we're getting ready for sleep. And tea is portable. You know, I travel a ton. So every hotel I ever stay in has a place where I can get hot water. So you throw your little you know, chamomile, passion flower, valerian tea in there. And you're kind of creating that rhythm that we would have like as a little kid. Okay, well, we watch one episode of Dora the Explorer, and then we read three books, and daddy will scratch your back, and we'll say our prayers about, you know, Uncle Jane and our weird Aunt Jack, you know, or whatever. And then we'll just kind of, you know, and, and we, we we go to bed. And 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 so that ritual and that that sort of every night is the same, tea can play a big role in that. Do these things knock people out? You know, there's a whole TikTok trend on lettuce water. You know, they would put a piece of lettuce in the hot water and people were saying it was just completely knocking them out. Uh, you know, there are chemicals in chamomile and passion flower that, that may have some sort of sedating or calming properties. But I think that the way we want to most health, the healthy relationship we want with these are, again, they're supporting the nu- nutrients and the ritual that we want to have in terms of that healthy relationship with sleep and not, oh my goodness, I've traveled and I forgot my medicinal tea. I'm never going to be able to sleep without it. That That's 
crossing over into more of an unhealthy relationship with something like that. And not just tease, really with anything. I agree with you. And I think that that warmth and ritual, like I kind of call it a hug from a mug. Oh, I love that. Oh, God, I'm stealing that immediately. <laughs> hug from a mug. That's great, Bonnie. I love that. Just having that at night before going to sleep, I really enjoy that. So I know that I I totally agree with you. And what about taking, I know that some people, you know, a lot of my clients take vitamin supplements, for example, like vitamin C, because vitamin C is shown to support health. Yet we also know that cranberries are a great source of vitamin C and that there are many foods that are good sources. So what do you think about that? Supplements. Yeah. I mean, what I think about supplements begins and ends with the term supplement. Are you using it to supplement or are you using it to treat? And I think there's a big distinction there. I, I think supplementation is great. And I'll just give a disclaimer to your, your listeners. I'm definitely stepping outside of my area of expertise. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm a neurologist and sleep specialist. I think supplementation makes a lot of sense, particularly if you feel like you may be deficient in some things. I had a great conversation recently with a nutritionist for an athletic team that I work for. And we were talking about magnesium. And I said, do you really need to supplement magnesium if you've got it in your diet? And it was interesting what she said. She said, ideally, no. But in the way we grow our foods today, you know, hydroponically and, and sort of on a mass scale, a lot of things that would traditionally be in the foods that we eat, even healthy foods, you know, green leafy vegetables to me is the big top of the pyramid, right? That the amount of these nutrients, you know, things like magnesium that might be found in the, the green leafy vegetables you're getting today may not be necessarily what they, what was in them, you know, 20 years ago. And so I think that, you know, being attention, paying attention to that, talking to people who are truly experts in the field and getting good sources of information, I think supplementation can be great, meaning that I'm trying to supplement the nutrition I'm already getting and make things a little bit better to give me the best chance for optimal health, sleep, prosperity that I can have. So I'm I'm in favor of them. What I think we have to be very careful of is sort of the, remember Linus Pauling, the guy who won the Nobel Prize who said, you know, mega doses of, I think his thing was vitamin C, not to pick on vitamin C, that it'll cure every, you know. And I think we have to be very careful when we start leaning on a supplement as like a cure especially when there's not a lot of great evidence in there. So if you're somebody who supplements with the vitamins during the day, I think it's probably a good idea because I'm sure there are holes in everybody's nutrition that can be filled with these types of things. I often get a question about how much water a person needs during the day. And my response always varies depending on you know where you live, what you're doing, how much you sweat and all of that. So I'm going to ask you the question that I also get is how many hours of sleep should a person get at night? And there are so many different answers to that. And I know that personally, like six hours is what I know I have to have. If I have more than that, then I feel like I could like lift the building. But <laughs> what do you think? Like how much sleep do we really need? I think sleep is different for everybody. I think that's very important as a nutritionist. You know, it's like asking you, hey, I got a friend. He wants to know how many calories he should be eating a day. My guess is you can't answer that question without knowing a lot more about my friend. How old is he? What does he do for a living? Is he an elite swimmer or an accountant that sits on his rear end all day long? You know, so I think sleep's sort of like that. It's a genetically controlled variable in our brain, meaning that everybody who's listening to this podcast has a certain amount of sleep that they need. And I would say, look, you know, between 
something about somewhere around 70 to 80% of the adult population needs between seven to nine hours of sleep. So what that means is 20 to 30% of people need more than nine or require fewer than seven. And when you think about the genetic variables of sleep, there's sleep amount. How much do you, are you programmed to need? There's timing of sleep. Are you a night owl, a morning person? That's, that's genetically inherited to some extent. But the third thing that's really problematic is we take all of your listeners and we do a 24-hour podcast where you and I talk for 24 hours nonstop, no sleep, and invite all the listeners to do the same. Stay up with us. We're going to talk about sleep and cranberries and all kinds of good stuff all night long. And Chris will tell funny stories about Major League Baseball players' sleep and all this good stuff. And at the end of the 24 hours, we tell all of your listeners, go off to your job and see what happens. Some people will go to their job and literally everybody in the office will have no idea that that individual stayed up all night long because they're performing beautifully the next day. Other people will be functionally incapacitated. They're like They couldn't even find their car keys to get out of the house to get to their job. They're so tired. So one of the variables that it creates a problem is some people are better able to deal with inadequate sleep than others. Doesn't mean they're healthy, just means they can deal with it better than other people can. So I think the best thing to think about sleep need is the average adult needs eight hours. But if you're somebody like, you know, you say, look, I get seven and feel great. When I try to get eight, like my partner does, I usually sit there for an hour before I fall asleep. Then maybe that's nature telling you that seven is perfect for you. And that's that's fine. So don't confuse literature saying that people who get fewer than eight hours or seven hours of sleep are high at risk of heart disease, cancer, dementia. That might be the case, but we're talking about a population average. We're not talking about Jonathan Smith from Topeka, Kansas, whose mother is a trauma surgeon, whose father is a lawyer, and clearly has sort of that short sleep gene in his family. So if he's like, look, I get six hours and 45 minutes and feel great. And when I try to sleep much more than that, I simply can't. Then six hours and 45 is probably fine for you. But what we want to watch out for is the person who says, hey, as long as I get four, four and a half, I'm good. Being good and being able to get through your day and perform well and give a great PowerPoint presentation and teach the kids and do all the things you need to do at your job is one thing. Living past the age of 56 without significant heart disease and dementia is a completely different thing. So being good and being healthy can be two very different things. I agree with you. So it sounds like eight might be the magic number for water and sleep. <laughs> so Right. No, I think it is. For, for But just think of it as a bell curve. Eight's in the middle. So if somebody says eight's good for, that's a good place to start. If you're like, Chris, I have no idea how much sleep I need. Start with eight. And then kind of move forward from there and adjusting it a little bit fewer hours or a little bit more, depending on how you're feeling and what your body's telling you. What do you think about the devices that are around now that tell us not only how many hours of sleep we have, but really details the kind of sleep? I had this conversation with my son the other day, and he was saying how many hours of sleep he had when he woke up and felt so tired and so little REM sleep. And yet then on other days, he had so much less sleep and felt so much better. So what we're talking about now is sort of the rise of the consumer grade product that's allowing us some degree of insight into our sleep quality and quantity. And I'll say from the onset, I'm a big fan of them. I like them, but they are not without drawbacks. Number one, how accurate are they? You know, what are they using to make those determinations for your son? And the old devices that we used decades ago were what are called accelerometers. They you put them on your wrist, and if you were moving, 
the algorithm assumed you were awake. If you were still for a long period of time, it assumed you were asleep. And you can imagine there might be some problems with that line of thinking, hey, just because you're sitting still doesn't necessarily mean you're asleep. You could just be waiting to fall asleep or sitting on a train or something like that. So as the technology has gotten better, it's looked at things like heart rate and heart rate variability, pulse oximetry, your body temperature, sweating. There's all kinds of new variables that these watches and rings and headbands can measure. So they are getting better at accurately characterizing sleep very quickly. So I think that being aware of sleep is a good thing, and, and but sort of taking it with a bit of a grain of salt in the sense that I would say that if your your son and his partner both had these devices and your son was always getting a D minus grade or 30% and the partner who went to sleep at the same time and got up at the same time was always getting 80, 90% grades, there may be something to that. You know, I, I've never had a patient come to our clinic saying, I'm getting terrible scores on my device and I feel terrible that I would dismiss or laugh at. Like there, it might may be correct. It may be you know, wrong. So what we don't want is to get worked up about it. Feedback about their sleep. But also I think these things work best with a question. Hey, I was listening to Chris's podcast. He said, alcohol is not good for sleep. I think it's great for sleep. Well, good. Do the, do the experiment. And I've done this before one time. I drink a lot of beers before I went to bed for two weeks wearing a device. And then the next two weeks drank none because I wanted to see what happened. And it was miserable. I would get ready to go to bed some nights and brushing my teeth. My wife's like, you forgot your beers. I'm like, oh God, I did. So I got to go down there and pull out beers and you know drink them quickly right before I went to bed. It's the worst. But what my device showed was I was clearly sleeping better without the beer than with it. So it's fun when you have those kinds of questions. Do I sleep better at my girlfriend's apartment than I do at home on her in my mattress or things like that? What we don't want to do is get so worked up about trying to get a high score that that anxiety about going to bed is sort of affecting us. Well, now I have a question to ask you that I don't really want to ask you, but I have to ask you because we all want to know this. So for those of us that that toss and turn, we know we need to turn off our screens about two hours before we turn in. And this is so hard to do. I have really tried. I have not been successful, admittedly so. Is it really two hours? I mean, can it be like 20 minutes? I mean, what is the deal here? You know, it's funny. I, I did a, I think it's still to date, the most popular episode of, of my podcast was episode 40, Tired Sleep Advice. And that's what I called it. You know, we got to find something new. And, and I kind of went through pieces of advice we hear often about sleep and why I th I disagree with them. And one of them was the two-hour thing. Listen, I, I don't think our phones should be next to our bed. So anytime we wake up in the night, we can scroll through and see what our emails show. And if we got any Bed Bath & Beyond coupons, I guess that's not a thing anymore since they're uh -huh. heading out. So I just think having that away from us is a good thing. But this idea that, you know, at nine o'clock, Everything gets shut down. And I guess what? You just sit in a chair in the dark for two hours before you go to bed. I think it's kind of silly. So when we think about sleep hygiene, it's really about things that sort of set the stage for good sleep. But if somebody says, look, it's taking me hours and hours to fall asleep or I sleep really poorly during the night, I don't think you're going to see a lot of benefit from, okay, I'm going to do it, Chris. I'm going to sit in the dark for two hours no TV, no screens, and then go to bed versus not. I mean, maybe you would find yourself falling asleep a few minutes faster or you know, sleep a few more minutes during the night. But I think it's just really about a healthy relationship with it that 
you know, watch a little bit of TV, but maybe no caffeine, maybe turning all the lights in the living room where you're sitting there watching TV down or dim, making it cooler, being in comfortable clothes, getting your mug hug, like doing all those things the right way, but still watching your episode of RuPaul's Drag Race or whatever you like to watch right before you go to bed. If that makes you, again, that that TV show can, or being on your phone can be part of that rhythm for going to bed. Do your wordle, you know, with your friends or whatever. And you do your little wordle right before you go to bed, watch your TV show, but then the electronics go away. So again, I think that we could talk about that as almost a supplement, like being smart with these things will supplement good sleep. Are they going to cure anybody of a sleep problem? I mean, I think we pretty much know now that sleep hygiene doesn't cure any problem. It just sets the stage for good sleep if no problems exist otherwise, I think. Yeah, I, I really do like that answer. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> sure. And I, I know I was, I was talking to a client the other day, and she was saying that she really likes to read before she goes to sleep. She doesn't watch TV at all because it doesn't help her. However, she was reading on her iPad. So that light at night is really not that much different. However, for her, it helped her because her reading actually made her sleepy. So Absolutely. I agree you. Thank you so much. And maybe she could get some of those little yellow glasses, you know, like a Uvex, Swanwick. I always tell people if you're using blue blocking glasses before you go to bed, they probably need to have a yellow lens. They don't have a yellow lens. They're probably not blocking that much light. But getting in bed and putting on something like that, there was a study many, many years ago where people wore welder's masks before they went to bed with a little window that's really, really dark. And so having that light from her e-reader shining into her face, but wearing those sort of sunglasses or blue blockers could sort of mitigate that sort of situation. And she's like, look, I don't like to read real books or go to the library, buy them. I just do everything on my Kindle because I like to have it with me is because it's portable. Then yeah, just put some little glasses on, keep them on your bedside table. So when you hop in bed at night to read, put those little glasses on and I think you're probably just fine. Thanks for joining us for the Cranberry Chronicles podcast. Tune in next week as we continue our lively conversation with Dr. W. Chris Winter, where we'll be chatting about the gut sleep connection tips for falling asleep and staying asleep, and when you might need to see a sleep specialist. Sponsored by the Cranberry Institute, it's a not-for-profit organization founded in 1951 to further the success of cranberry growers and the industry in the Americas through health, agricultural, and environmental stewardship research, as well as cranberry promotion and education. Thank you again so much for listening and for sharing your time with us. 